Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre, Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's literary associate and your host, Rosie Kelliger. Welcome to the Travcast. I'm Rosie Kelliger and today I'm really delighted to have with me Rebecca Sharp. Rebecca is a writer whose work spans art forms with enviable ease, encompassing poetry, prose, playwriting and all the grey areas in between. Her writing has been seen and heard from Liverpool to New York and in Scotland she's made work for The Arches, A Play A Pie and A Pint and she's currently in rehearsals for The Air That Carries the Weight, her new play for the award-winning Stellar Quines Theatre Company which will open at the Traverse from the 24th to the 26th of March. Um, Welcome, Rebecca. It's lovely to have you here. Hi, thank you. Um, I would really love to talk to you a bit more about these grey areas. Mm. Um, And uh, I see you've been doing quite a lot of work around the kind of sensory uh, potential of writing and of theatre making. And Mm. I noted with interest, because I was very sad not to get to Stanza this year, that Mm. you were poet and perfumer in residence at the Stanza Poetry Festival. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, indeed, yeah. It kind of came out of my own use of essential oils, first of all. So I have to start off by saying I'm a complete amateur in that area. I was using essential oils just for my own pleasure, burning them in the house, making my own perfumes. And then it started to creep into my written work, which is my main um, work, really. It was supposed to be. It's less and less these days, but it's supposed to be my main uh, area. Um, And I realised that was starting to inform the way I was thinking about my writing. So I started using essential oils in a couple of uh, creative writing workshops that I was taking just to start to explore that a little bit further and how ideas kind of uh, mix together. Um, And essential oil seems to be a really nice metaphor for for that. And perfume blending then became a really nice metaphor for poetry. This idea of distilling things down to their purest form and then recombining them in a different way uh, and making something completely new where all the the different elements are blended together. um, and it becomes a, a thing of the imagination then your imagination carries those ideas forward from the material form so yeah I really a massively extended metaphor and then I came to this idea of actually making a piece of work around that so literally making it uh, ended up being five uh, perfume blends and five poems and ma- making them at the same time um, yeah and, and, and I was wanting to do that then I was speaking to the artist Jean Johnston and she was the one who coined the phrase poet perfume in residence because we were talking about stanza and uh, then I went to Eleanor Livingston uh, the director of stanza with the idea and it fitted perfectly with one of their themes being the body poetry and it was just such a perfect fit um, and she gave me the venue as well which just was a perfect fit this lovely old chemist space this apothecary space in uh, the museum in St Andrews so all the, all the bits just tied together really nicely how beautiful it's interesting that you talk about uh, about it as a as a metaphor because it, it also strikes me as as something and it's it's lovely to have something kind of as uh, as lightweight uh, as a metaphor but it also strikes me as something that's really pleasingly tangible about making um poetry and spoken word have a very personal connection to the listener and to the audience and i wonder mm. if you could tell us a bit about what uh, your relationship as poet perfumer in residence was mm. to your audience and how they responded to the work both 
written and heard and mm. presumably also scented? Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, I was really interested in alchemists. Uh, the research kind of really took me into that area. And the role of the alchemist, who was a person who was very secret and private and they worked in secrecy and the very early alchemists were working with plant materials and actually came through uh, very early perfumers became the alchemists um so they were using very kind of shared ideas shared language but they were they worked in isolation and great secrecy there was this real exclusivity around what they did so i wanted to give a hint of that because that was kind of where the ideas were coming from but then immediately blow it open and say no this this is completely accessible completely open um because as an artist as well everyone probably feels different but you're constantly moving between being very private and working certainly as a writer working in isolation and sometimes enjoying that sometimes not enjoying that but it's usually entirely necessary and then going into a place where you're having to work with other people and that's wonderful and always welcomed and can also be difficult in its own ways as you know any creative collaborative process can be um but you're constantly moving between these different realms which um I always find interesting because I like them both. I like having that private time and I also love then coming out and being able to share what I'm doing with other people, whether it's through a talk, um, a demonstration or a workshop or doing something like this. You know, it's 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 nice for me to get out, basically. Otherwise, you are just kind of sitting in your room the whole time going a bit mad. Um, yes, the struggling writer in their garret. Exactly, yeah. There's a bit, a bit of that's okay, but yeah, only up to a point. Um, so Stanza was wonderful because, I, I mean, I wasn't physically in residence the whole time, but the, the main thing was that the work was and then it belonged to everybody that was crucial that it's not about me that it's all about the audience coming into this very small space actually and interacting with the work in their own way and literally picking up each jar and opening it uh, so the physical interaction is really important irrespective of where I am in that whole process I'm out the way by then uh, and then I did two artist talks as part of the residency as well which was lovely because uh, speaking I love speaking to people and I love uh, trying to answer people's questions hopefully in some kind of to some satisfaction um, but it, it, it never fails to kind of bring up things that maybe I've forgotten about or haven't thought about in quite the same way so it's always valuable for me to be able to speak to people and hear what other people think and what questions they have about the work. So it, it does sound as though there is a real diversity to your practice mm. um and it, you talked to you said earlier you know the writing part of my work which is meant to be the main part but isn't mm. so i wonder if you could talk a bit about how those different strands of your work and all the all the different forms of writing um mm. how they inform each other or how they perhaps are, are quite difficult to fit alongside each other how do you how do you juggle that and how um what's the what are the opportunities uh, that you find are presented by working across different forms in this way? Mm. Um, well, firstly, I think over the years I've kind of um, worried a bit about that, worried a bit about should I be one thing or the other? And um, thankfully, fairly quickly just rejected that notion. And, and I'm very ideas driven. So if I've got an idea for something that takes precedence, it's purely about the idea uh, the imaginative possibilities within it, um, which usually then tells me what it wants to be. So it might want to be a series of poems, it might want to just be one poem, or it wants to be a play, or it wants to be something uh, more prose-like. Um, it then might need somebody else to come on board. So if, 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 if I've started writing something and started following, following that path, I might come to a stage where I realise, oh, this needs a visual element or I actually want it to be collaborative or it needs to be performed or it needs to be heard or, or whatever. Um, 
and I think so long as speaking for myself, I think so long as you're open to that process all the time and getting out of your own way all the time and not making it about you, then that can happen. Um, and that's really the, my job, I think, is, is to, to just let those ideas come in. And having you know made a few projects now, got some, some experiences under my belt, I kind of start to recognise that more quickly, perhaps, what it wants to be. Um, how it wants to kind of manifest itself and then um, oh, it sounds a bit eerie fairy but I, I'm just kind of helping it on its way really um, that is you know at its purest form what my job is um, and then I, I get to write all sorts of wonderful things on top of that but if you dig if you dig down to the core that's what it is mm. it's just the ideas and whatever they want to be that's a fantastic way of putting it whatever they want to be um, I'm intrigued by by what you say about getting out of the way of your own work what role do you see if you, if you for example look back at uh work that you maybe made a few years ago how present do you see yourself as being in in that work has there maybe been a, a journey to kind of stepping back uh and to maybe being more precise in your process or mm, yeah i think I've, I've gained a lot from working collaboratively um, I mean, my early plays, well, I was just really young, so I, I can barely read them now. They just read, read very much of that time. Um, the first truly collaborative piece I did that wasn't a play, because all plays are collaborative, because there's lots of people working on them, but uh, was a piece I did called uh, The Ballad of uh, Juniper Davy and Sunny Lumiere, which was when I was living in Liverpool, and it was in 2009-10, and it made it with a visual artist, Elizabeth Willow, and it at its at its core it's a series of 15 poems but we decided to turn it into a promenade performance site specific promenade performance and elizabeth uh, designed all of the spaces uh, designed everything to do with the performances and also designed the book and cd that we made as well so and we, we kind of co-directed it and co-devised co what it was going to be and because it was poems it wasn't poetic text these were li literally individual poems um that really meant we had to be really careful with how we treated them because at no stage could we ever pretend it was a play, really. Um, I mean, The Air That Carries the Weight is poetic, but it is a play, even though it pretends not to be. It's poetic, but it's a play. But the, the, the ballad was literally a series of poems. So that was the first time, really, I started to realise what I was trying to do, actually, <laughs> which was to, to truly mesh together these different... Uh, languages, visual performance, text, um, in a way that people, audiences could have an experience with the material and be part of it and really truly immersive. And that piece, its greatest strength was how immersive it was. And people said they really felt transported by it. And I think that's when you know you're doing something right and when you've got the elements working together really well. And can you tell us then a little bit more about the air that carries the weight the play that pretends to be a poem as you just described <laughs> <Yeah>. it <laughs> oh gosh yeah um well they're still really in the thick of it um so it's all very exciting um for me it's been quite a long time in development um just in terms of it's very early how it started um I discovered the work of Scottish archaeologist Marion Campbell when I was working on something else I was writing and was really interested in her as a person, her archaeological work around Argyll, where she was from, and also this novel, uh, The Dark Twin. And because I was working on something else, I kind of had to put it to one side, but it was it was definitely there, kind of niggling away, wanting attention. Uh, so it was about a year or so later, so this is about 2013, I was able to start looking at it properly. Um, and then I was speaking to... 
Muriel about things I was thinking about at the time and started talking about The Dark Twin. Originally, I thought I wanted to do it as an adaptation, but this novel, um, it's set in the Bronze Age. It's it's completely of that world. Um, so it talks all about, you know, rituals and uh, all Bronze Age kind of language and very, very mystical. Um, so it kind of defies adaptation in lots of ways. And, and then I kind of moved away from that idea and realised it want, the, the, whatever I was going to write wanted to be much more actually about Marion uh, Campbell herself as much as her work. And then I added another layer onto it, which is a fictional world of the two characters, Isabel and Yvonne. So it's kind of built up from the core of the Dark Twin and Marion Campbell coming up to now the, the fictional world of the two characters and all three are in the play. So it's Yvonne and Isabel are the two friends um, of our time and uh, Marion Campbell, who died in 2001. Um, But she's there as a kind of guide, a kind of shaman figure for the other two characters. Um, That's how it started. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The text is very poetic. It's got some, some, a a real storytelling quality to it. Um, a, A real kind of, mystical quality to it as well um in the language which i think does come from the world of poetry and then constantly trying to make that relatable for an audience and for just telling a story and for getting the the, the, to the core of the points uh, that you want to make and getting them across so it's this constant shift between uh really wanting to embrace the poetic nature of what I'm trying to do as a writer and what we're all aiming for and then also making it relatable and performable as well. I mean, the actresses have been absolutely astounding in just entering into this wholeheartedly in Muriel as well, of course, and everybody, um, but really helping so much. I mean, I can't, I can't emphasise that enough, how much everyone has helped shape the text into its new form. And that's that's another good lesson for me as well of when to step back and when just to let that happen. Because you have to want that. You know, you can't I, I don't think you I don't think you can come in with a text um and say it's complete especially not one this strange. You know, it's fine if it's a more straightforward conventional narrative. Absolutely fine. This isn't. So you have to come in with, with that kind of open heart and, and let everybody have at it, which is what's happened joyfully. Sounds like a fantastic process. And obviously, uh, Muriel Romanus, the director and outgoing artistic director of Stellar Quines, has huge experience in that. I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that process of, as you say, theatricalising this highly poetic text and how much was that something that happened prior to rehearsals? Because I know you went through their sort of development strand of work, their Mm -hmm. rehearsal room strand, as as they call it, uh, which... uh, sometimes happens here at the Traverse um, and which has a a really rigorous process of putting things in front of an audience and giving things time so what Mm. what's been the the balance between before you come into rehearsals shaping the text and exploring what it might be and how much has it been kind of crafted and wrought Mm. on the rehearsal room floor as it were well yeah of course we did the uh, rehearsal room in October 2014 yeah and it was in a very early stage then. Um, I just had a, f- a few scenes and that was when I was still trying to make it a one-woman show because I was so um, compelled by the trilogy that Stella Quines had just done uh, with Maureen Beattie and and I was loving this this idea that, oh, great, it can be a one-woman show. Um, and then, of course, that was when it was just maybe one character, two voices, um, and it became three. Um, so yeah, the rehearsal room was massively useful in just trying out the ideas and, and broaching out those very early stages. And then 
Muriel and I spent a while uh, corresponding about the text as I wrote it and I went to stay um, at Kilberry Castle, there's a cottage there where uh, Marion Campbell lived. Uh, I went to stay there for a week in May last year and did some more work on the text actually then in situ. Um, How wonderful to immerse yourself yeah, kind of in her world, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. It was it was wonderful. And I met her, her relations who live in the castle now, John and Charmian, and uh, they were massively helpful as well, invited me in and had a chat. So, yeah, to have to, to have access and insight into literally her world was just amazing. Um, and I was writing it... I mean, I was writing it as a play. I do keep coming back to that. I really was. There's, there's dialogue in there. Um, but the challenge really came in the shifting between the worlds. You know, it's all very well having a, a scene of dialogue which works beautifully by itself or a, a very poetic monologue that works beautifully by itself. But what we found then in practice was how to shift between these worlds in a way that, first of all, um, we understand <laughs> and crucially the actresses understand and are comfortable with and really feel ownership of and, and that they really inhabit that world, those worlds, because there's more than one world going on. Uh, but then, of course, the audience as well have to go with you in, in that process. So it may well obviously work on, on the page, but then, yeah, getting up and playing with it became another thing. So then when we were in rehearsals, I was there for the first full week of rehearsals and was able to uh, edit on the hoof and um, the cast and everybody's been really instrumental in contributing to that process as well and advising where it really stuck in those transitions um, and, and where, where it, it, it was fine. And it was really difficult on the one hand for me to articulate certain things and uh, really useful for me to have to go through that slight unease about that um, because I always find if, I, if I've written something one way that's that's why it's that way that's why it's maybe well it doesn't matter what it, if it's if it's abstract or if it's strange it just is so if I've written it that way it's because it just is that way so for me to have to re-articulate it another way is really difficult but probably incredibly useful for me to have to do that um so I was kind of going through my own transitions there with where it's helpful helpful for me to um try and explain something um and when sometimes it's okay just to say it just is it just is that way or that person just says something that way because that's how they would have said it and we were all you know, all of us in the room were constantly finding those um different movements between no we, we need to understand more here um and that's useful for, for us all to understand more and when it's okay just to accept that it's abstract or that it's slightly uncomfortable and just to go with that so the whole piece is about that those slight moments of discomfort and shifting between different energies i suppose really so it's been tricky but really good <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much for letting us into your process and giving us an insight into the development of The Air That Carries the Weight, mm. which opens on the 24th of March uh, yep. here with us at The Traverse. Good luck for it. Thank you. And uh, for this very final stage of rehearsals. Yes, thanks. And thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.